Welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as always, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. Our guest today is Octavio Costa, about whom you'll be hearing more in just one moment. But Evan, first, I have a confession. It is 11.07 a.m. Eastern Time. My hair is still wet. Now, this is, I would, you know, I would, uh, frankly, yeah, I would uh, confess to a error of leadership in this regard, because you're not supposed to show up in the office at 11 o'clock in the morning with your hair still wet if you are the CEO, the founder, and the editor of a certain fortnightly indispensable financial publication. But that is the case. And the only excuse I have is that we published last night. And um, I got it. It was a great uh, issue of grants, I have to say. But still, I mean, uh, it's been more than you know, like 12 hours. I mean, it's not as if we just published five minutes ago, and still I'm I'm late, so I just want to get that out of the way, Evan. Is it, uh, it is likely that Federal Reserve Bank of New York being leveraged 300 and something to one. That's not exactly leading from the front, is it, Evan? I mean, if you're in the vanguard, act like the darn leader, right? Uh, especially if, uh, at the start of an inflationary cycle, but everything's yeah. about to get worse. Well, uh, worse is, uh, yeah, that's, that's our middle name here. <laughs> no, it's not. No. Uh, we are sometimes bearish, but we are not in the business of worse. We are optimists. Otherwise, we wouldn't be coming to the office for a better part of 40 years every morning, even if sometimes our hair is wet upon arrival. So Octavia Costa goes by Tavi. Tavi Costa is a is a member. We're going to ask him more about member capital M. I gather that's like a, a partner. It's a, he belongs to something. He was portfolio manager at Crescat Capital which has been around since the last great bubble, 1999, and uh, Tavi has been with the firm since 2013. And Tavi is a native of uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, fluent as one might expect in Portuguese, but also in Spanish, and as we are about to hear also in English. He is a most fluent tweeter and a thoughtful one, and I think, Eva, that's how he came to your attention. That is correct. Yeah, so a thoughtful tweeter is uh, seemingly an oxymoron, but we have on the telephone today a man who defies that convention. Watavi, we welcome you to Current Yield. Well, too funny. Uh, thanks for having me, guys, and looking forward to this conversation. Um, and I'm a big fan of both of you's work. In, All right. Uh, that's enough of that, Tommy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, Evan's going to ask more than one question. Evan, is the, uh, as you well know, he is the uh, securities analyst par excellence around this institution. But I wanted to ask you first, this is a macro fund. But uh, we have been given to understand for now donkey's years that macro funds uh, are or ought to be extinct, macro investing, top-down investing, being yesteryear's uh, idea. So uh, what accounts for your existence, Avi? And what do you have to say on behalf of the idea of macro investing? Well, look, I think we've had a, a, done a great job at, at least uh, acknowledging, uh, identifying some of the big trends in the macro side, and we've had a lot of uh, success. Uh, and I would say, put most of that on Kevin's uh, hat for uh, for the what happened in the global financial crisis, the issues with uh, really in, in the commodity space uh, coming out of there, uh, where he was long most of the commodities, and then uh, the Chinese issues in 2014. We're probably one of the earliest hedge funds that started betting against the Chinese yuan back in 2015, which we really started in 2014 for us. Um, the oil market, uh, when it crashed back in 2014, was also a big theme for us. So we've got a lot of, of new themes now. What are your current themes now? Uh, current themes, well, we've got you know three big themes. Uh, I would, one of them is the Chinese 
credit and currency imbalances that we see. Uh, the second one is really a, a, a record valuations in long duration assets. There's so many ways to play that from either uh, mega cap stealing growth from software stocks, rationalization from a misprice. Uh, cost of capital. And the third one is inflationary assets, which launched this, uh, yeah, the strategy is really focused on on mostly that. Tavi, on the first theme, uh, China, today as we're uh, recording this, the auditor of Evergrande resigned, causing investors to worry that there is more hidden debt hiding on Chinese real estate developers' balance sheets. That's um, impossible. <laughs> 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 they had to wait for the resignation of the auditor of Evergrande <laughs> to find that out. Investors are a box-ticking group of, uh, of people, I think. Yeah, okay. I heard there were efficient markets, but please proceed, Evan. I mean, Tavi, uh, grants readers have kind of gotten a little bit of the bear case on China, but I- I'd love if you can walk us through what you see happening, how you see this playing out, and how does Crescott Capital and its uh, limited partners benefit from this or profit from this? Yes, I th- we've been writing about this for, for some time now. We even actually, this is a theme that has not been working for the last uh, few years, as I think all of you know, but we still continue to have shorts in the Chinese yuan through put options and even the Hong Kong dollar. Uh, the thesis really goes back to empirically when you reach levels of debt to GDP like we see in China uh, from an overall perspective, again, including government, corporate, and household debt. Um, usually what we see is that uh, gold in local currency terms tends to rise. Sometimes you see uh, stock market uh, declining significantly. Sometimes you have a crash on the currency side. But for us, it has always been, you know, one of the ways that has been the most successful way to really implement this uh, thesis has been by owning gold in local currency terms. So part of our book has been mostly on the precious metal side and the other part is being short to Chinese currency. Um, we just we just think that the imbalances in regards to the debt amounts, you, you guys are both talking about the real estate market. Um, certainly that is a concern when you when you look back in times like pre-global financial crisis or other bubbles that we've had in the past. Certainly uh, the imbalances that we see in China resembles most of those. But I think it's perhaps the biggest credit bubble we've seen in history. I've never seen such a large uh, banking assets amount relative GDP uh, that doesn't occur in a, in a reconciliation of issues where uh, devaluation of the currency uh, occurs uh, from from such a, a large imbalance. Yeah. You know, what, what is vexing about some of these big megatrends is the elapsed time between uh, identification and realization. I was reading something just the other day that uh, was recounting some of the events of the uh, of the great mortgage and credit crack up of 2007 through 2009. I was I was taken back to that era and to the recollection of the seeming decades that uh, had to pass before the early movers on the theme were rewarded either with recognition or money, depending on what business you're in. We happen to be in the recognition end of things. We ish. Uh, Evan, don't you find large sums of money um, somewhat uh, cumbersome? Oh, yeah, it hurts my back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, as they say in the New York subway, they said, if you see something, say something. All right. So we saw something, 2001, which was house prices going way above trend. And then the mortgages started getting, uh, uh, you know, visibly and undeniably reckless around 2003. So, similarly in China, uh, when do we? When did uh, Evergrande come into our line of sight, Evan? What year was 2015 or 16, I believe? Yeah. So the number of years between 2016 and 2022 would seem to be only six. However. If your readers or if your limited partners become impatient, that six years can seem like 60. So how does Crescent Capital survive 
I know you, you've, you've seen these things coming, but uh, how do you spend the time between your identification of the theme and the payoff? Is this just solitaire or all day? Or how do you, what do you do? Well, it's a long process. And by the way, that's just one theme and one theme that has worked in the past and also has not worked recently. But uh, I think we've been uh, somewhat uh, done a great job at, at, at finding some of those big macro themes. I think there's this is really exciting times right now. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of new things that we can uh, that we can capitalize on. I, look, I've never seen the U.S. economy. You know, you, you guys covered history of financial history of the U.S. so well, but and in my opinion, I don't think we've never seen this three major macro imbalances happening all at once. We have the debt GDP problem that we had in the 40s with the financially repressed scenario. We have the inflationary environment of the 70s. And then we have the extreme valuations of the late 90s or even prior to the 1929 Great Depression. These are best of all worlds. <laughs> yeah, this is the explosive mix uh, that that came from, from long years of misguided policies, as both of you know, um, but it's creating true political constraints and setting the stage for what yeah. we think is going to be the most bullish macro case for owning tangible assets in history. I'd love to draw you out on that. In your December letter, you point out that since 2012, capital spending by technology firms has skyrocketed while CapEx by commodity producers has plummeted. And you also noted that this has been compounded by environmentally conscious investors starving commodity producers of capital. I think you wrote that for every dollar that has been invested in global equity markets today, just about five cents of it is flowing into commodity producers. And the other week you tweeted, Apple's market cap is 40% larger than the entire energy sector, and energy stocks generate almost 50% more annual free cash flow than Apple. I'd love if you can kind of draw out a little bit about what's happening in the commodity cycle, what it's going to take to actually invest enough to actually meet future demand, and what does this kind of mean for inflation and investors going forward? Yeah, I, I think those are the, the, the big, you know, secular trends that I think are still at the very, very beginning. Uh, long years of, of suppressed cost of capital have really lured uh, investors uh, into going out on the risk curve. And uh, we've seen this in, in capital uh, allocations and created great uh, or uh, market inconsistencies. I think the Apple example is, is just one of them. But when was the last time we've seen any major precious metals or, or base metal miner uh, develop a, a big new project? Uh, the answer is we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And so most of the money has been chasing technology projects. Everybody wants to be a technologist these days, but we forgot about the basic necessities to function a global economy. And so just if you look, you know, we like to look at the, the capital trends, but what about the labor trends? Labor trends, the amount of enrollment in geosciences has been in a secular decline already. It started really before 2011. And so the aggregate capex of the whole industry, and I see a lot of people kind of looking at this and, you know, saying, oh, this resembles back in 08 when we had energy prices going up and so forth. This is completely opposite. Back then, the aggregate capex for energy producers was at a peak. Today, it's at a multi-decade low. If you adjust for GDP levels, it should be at a 30-year low or so. And so what is causing here is, is lack of discoveries of, and developments and exploration of natural resources. And companies are not being able to leverage up, as we saw back in other peak levels of this industry. You know, equity issuances are actually not rising. They're actually, uh, some of those companies are buying back their shares in a significant way. Profitability is in the best uh, shape we've seen in history for a lot of those, uh, those industries, especially precious metals free cash flow yields and profit. 73% of the largest, the top 50 gold and silver miners 
are actually profitable today. That is mind-boggling because, you know, this industry has been bleeding capital for so many years. But the conservatism coming from the management teams is tremendous and it's not allowing companies really to, to develop uh, mines and new projects. And so we're seeing a shortfall of reserves uh, where the big companies are depleting their, their reserves and not finding new projects. And it's going to create a problem here. So this is, a, 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 I think, it's a chronic uh, underinvestment period. Uh, what commodities in particular and uh, what companies in particular seem to be at the cutting edge of opportunity in this theme? Oh, look, we've been allocating capital mostly in exploration. So if you look at the overall industry of precious metals specifically, I would say it's worth about $550 billion using the Bloomberg database for public companies. Uh, when you look at that, I would say that the majority of that number comes from the big majors, the new monks and barracks of the world. Uh, I would say institutional money has been going mostly to the big guys, but the, there's a very tiny amount of smart capital going to exploration because it requires uh, uh, knowledge in the industry and, and being finding you know uh, uh, high professional, good professionals in the geology world. That's already a scarcity in this industry in general. So I think the exploration assets, high quality, buying gold and silver in the ground or buying any mineral in the ground is perhaps the most levered way, not in the sense of debt, but in the sense of leverage to the price of those metals uh, that you can find. And so, you know, we think that, we think that building a portfolio of 80, 90 companies uh, that are all exploration assets is perhaps one way to kind of uh, finance or fund uh, most of those firms that will be looking for M&A opportunities. Uh, in the following years in order to replenish their uh, production pipeline. As we're recording today, Barrick just reported uh, blowout numbers, but instead of um, investing more in those mines, it announced a new $1 billion buyback, which seems to be proof your point. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's incredible. I think this industry, uh, the cyclicality of the industry is, is, is very, uh, they're very strong signs by looking at the fundamental changes over time. And, you know, the leverage ratios is a great way to do it. You know, companies are basically paying back their debt in amounts that we haven't seen in the past in the gold and silver space, at least. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's kind of fair when you look at the entire natural resources industry, um, you know, gold and silver companies or miners are really the most profitable ones that probably have the best balance sheet and so forth. And then you have oil companies that are more levered, but also have better profitability than perhaps gold and silver miners. And you have copper companies that don't make as much money as the gold and silver companies, but look a little bit worse on the balance sheets and also had a big run in 2021. So it all depends what you're looking for, but I think there's space for smart capital to really exploit a lot of the inefficiencies in the markets. And to be honest, looking at the gold and silver space and exploration, look, if you look at intercept of statistically of what uh, you're likely to find in terms of discoveries of gold and silver today, they're not being rewarded by the market. So you're seeing uh, incredible intercepts of exploration companies being put out publicly, and the market is just not rewarding them at all. Is it possible that the um, market, in its uh, wisdom or in its self-delusion, has decided that gold and silver are the stores of value of yesteryear and that um, smart money is going into... Uh... Evan, have you ever heard of these cryptocurrencies? Once or twice, this Japanese gentleman invented one of them? Satoshi yeah. something? What do, you, what do you say about the, uh, the theme that... Uh, Gold and silver have been fine for the first 4,000 years of recorded uh, commercial history, but uh, starting this year, uh, they are the very things not to own. 
Well, look, I think uh, the crypto market is certainly an extension of the technology bubble. I also think uh, that it's perhaps uh, one of the biggest political movements we've seen in history in the sense of a bunch of ideologies uh, put together in order to remove any intervention from the government. And I think ultimately that is what the gold and silver community uh, have uh, really calling for. And I think what's going to cause here is that uh, people are starting to question uh, the the sustainability of, of the, uh, currencies that have no anchor to any tangible asset. And I think that it, ultimately what we're going to see as well will be the improvement of international reserves among countries. And that historically has certainly been aligned with uh, higher gold prices. And so I don't think that that's the end of this. I think it's beautiful what we're seeing in regards to sentiment. Uh, given the fact that companies are so cheap uh, today. And I don't know necessarily if crypto is playing uh, a, you know, a, a big role in regards to exploration. I think it's also coming from uh, big companies. I mean, big companies are just not willing to spend the money on any project that doesn't generate free cash flow today. It's the uh, extreme conservatism coming from uh, big decisions on the large majors. And uh, for that, we're going to have to see a major supply cliff or depletion of those reserves. Uh, that will cause them to uh, to be forced to look into high quality assets to acquire. Of course, in the in the gold market, especially uh, marginal supply is of only limited uh, mm-hmm. significance for clearing prices because um, you know gold is never destroyed. Proverbially, uh, Cleopatra's uh, dental filling might be your dental filling. Um, so unlike uh, other commodities that are consumed, uh, the, the marginal production of gold in a given year seems to have very little impact on price. It's, it seems, as I read the market, it's mostly about speculative sentiment. And what strikes me so much about gold market is the disconnect between, on the one hand, the unique state of monetary policy, which is to say, in the face of 7% plus measured rates of consumer price inflation, the Fed continues to do QE, buying, monetizing public debt, and continues to set money market policy interest rates at zero. This has never before been seen, and I dare say, rarely imagined. So in the face of this, uh, the gold market grudgingly, grudgingly makes upside moves, which it uh, almost predictably then retraces. So I I'm a, you know, Evan says that Tavi is not a gold bug. He happens to be a student of the precious metal. Well, I am a damn gold bug, and I am annoyed. So, Tavi, if you have any influence on the clearing price of gold and silver, would you please uh, talk to uh, the people you know and uh, and uh, invite them to uh, get on the stick and move this thing? Thank you. I would. And I think, you know, Jim, uh, there's uh, an analysis that, you know, very simple analysis is looking at gold trends in, in regards to when it hits new highs. We've had that in 1978, I believe, and there was a decline of 15 percentage points after hitting new highs. So gold tends to struggle after hitting new highs. We saw that prior to the global financial crisis when gold also hit new highs and then decline that got caught up in the global financial crisis, declined close to 30 percent. And then today we saw that again, and the market was was down about what 15% since the peak of uh, August 2020. But it always resumes that, or it has uh, at least uh, historically always resumed uh, to new highs after after those uh, yes. pullbacks. Okay. And, Fair and so I'm very yep. confident that we'll see that. Tommy, again. one of the difficult things for investors is when there is kind of a regime change. Everybody who's learned kind of the rules in the old regime 
has to relearn the new rules and often makes a lot of mistakes. So in the last decade, buying speculative tech companies was the winning move. It, it uh, beat the S&P 500. It was the way to compound money and growth investors uh, won. Uh, as we're looking forward right now, I, you've written how central banks are going to be more constrained just given that there's higher inflation that's going to be persistent and it's no longer just as easy for the central banks to lower rates and um, do new quantitative easing programs. What are the lessons that investors have learned or have been ingrained into their psyches over the last 10 years that are going to be problematic as we're kind of moving into this regime that you see unfolding today? I, I have to imagine uh, always buying the dip whenever stocks kind of uh, waver might be one of them, but what, what do you see investors struggling with just as we kind of change you know, the underlyings of the market? Well, the biggest one that comes to my mind is the risk parity unwind, uh, which I think, I believe cost of capital is on the rise here. It's at the largest levels. If you look at weighted cost of capital for S&P 500 companies and a medium basis is at the largest levels we've seen since 08. The difference is that corporate debt is significantly higher than the tech bubble and the, and the housing bubble. Uh, that is just one side of that. Uh, but look, I think inflation uh, here is here to stay, and the notion that inflation is good for stocks is a total fallacy. Uh, if you're not growing at double digits today, you're just not keeping up with real inflation. I'm not talking about CPI. Uh, and I think energy prices and wages and salaries, and there's a lot of other signs in the macro side that are showing that profit margins or earnings are perhaps uh, at peak. We saw this kind of once-in-a-lifetime boost in fundamentals, uh, literally financed by the government, and savings went down by about $5 trillion. And that is really what happened with earnings and, and profit margins in the last uh, 12 to 20 months or so. And so uh, tightening financial conditions uh, and credit spreads rising and junk bond yields rising all leads to bankruptcies and issues with with the contraction of fundamentals. ISM manufacturing leads operating margins by six months uh, and, and starting to roll over. And one of the best contrarian indicators out there, uh, I'm sure both of you are very much aware of that, is the tight labor market, you know, continuing jobless claims at the lowest level since the 70s. So, uh, and, and then we have one bigger problem, which I think uh, not a lot of investors have really lived through, which is inflation. Um, I come from Brazil and I certainly have lived through inflationary environments. But in the U.S., the majority of market participants have no idea what are the implications of that. And we have, you know, I think there's three pillars of inflation really, um, you know, running at full cylinders right now. You know, um, before we get into the three uh, pillars, an observation from something I learned uh, in preparing the, uh, the current issue of grants, which is that, rather, I was reminded of this. So in September, there was the, uh, uh, the federal election in Germany. Uh, to pick the successor to Angela Merkel. And uh, opinion polls leading up to that balloting found that um, the state of the economy, including prospects for inflation, figured, I think, third or way down the list of, uh, of intensity of concern. First was the environment, you know, climate. It was like, I don't know, 40% of the people polled said that was the preeminent problem facing Germany. Then came the pandemic, and finally, like 8% only uh, mentioned the economy. So the proverbially inflation-phobic Germans themselves seemingly have collectively put aside recollections of uh, the early 1920s in the Weimar Republic, which speaks, I think, um, uh, Tavi, to your observation on a generational turn in this country. Hey, but you know what reminds me of, Evan? This reminds me of our sponsor, uh, the name of which is Coda. And I'm going to tell you a little something about Coda before we resume. So here's a message from our friends at Coda, uh, which wants you to know that you don't have to be inefficient merely because you're spread out. Being spread out and trying to keep the team on the same page and focused on tasks 
That's a problem, but here is a solution. Coda. Now, with teams working all across the country, if your best work is spread out across documents and spreadsheets and a stack of workflow tools you have to jump in and out of all day, well, then you need Coda, the doc that brings it all together. It's customizable, connected, you name it, whether it's a product roadmap, remote onboarding, meeting notes, etc., you name it, Coda has it. Everything in Coda is synced and it adapts to growing teams and changing strategies. Make an update to a table and it automatically shows up everywhere. No more relying on copy and paste to keep linchpin projects current. So with Coda, you can solve for just about anything. And right now, you can get started having your team all working together on the same page for free. Head over to coda.io slash yield. That's C-O-D-A dot I-O. Get started for free. Coda.io slash yield. Okay, Tavi um, and Evan, why don't you carry on the next question? Tavi, what are those three pillars of inflation that are going to drive uh, everyday prices higher? Well, look, I, I, I've seen a lot of ways, but you know, more simplistically, the demand pull side of it comes from the wages and salaries growth spiral, which is similar to the 70s. And by the way, uh, you guys both wrote about this as well, about the, the cost of living rising that tends to uh, really uh, trigger uh, this desire from folks to uh, require uh, higher wages and salaries. And, and Spanish flu, uh, I believe uh, I believe it was Jim that actually wrote this in one of his books, that one out of five people in the U.S. labor force was actually engaged in a strike back, back there, during the Spanish flu. I think we have to see more of that here in the U.S. Uh, today. Um, government-driven policies that are really going after peak inequality issues and really financing uh, different ways of, of improving the bottom 50% or even declining the top first percentile of the population and so forth. I think on the cost push side of the second pillar of inflation has to do with the supply shortages, the historic trends in underinvestment in natural resources causing this rising commodity prices, energy prices in particular, food prices is another one. And, and then the third one comes from the monetary debasement. Well, I think a lot of people have been uh, talking a lot about the, the misguided policies and the monetary and fiscal side, but I don't think there's enough focus on the net amount of issuances in the treasury market, especially in bonds and notes. We're seeing close to five to $600 billion worth of, of those instruments being issued every three months. And the Fed has been buying close to 40 to 50 percent of those every every month. And so who is going to be the buyer of those of those treasuries going forward? I'm a little concerned about that. And we've seen the news now with EOJ purchasing uh, JGBs uh, and the limited amounts in the, in the long end. Um, you know, that is at, at what point do we see that in the U.S. as well if interest rates continue to rise? And so I think those are all playing into the three pillars of inflation that will continue to be the case here. Uh, and it's a secular trend. And we got to think about uh, what are the best ways to really capitalize on this going forward. And I think there's a lot of market inefficiencies that are able to be exploited. And one of them is, I think, it's the precious metal uh, exploration assets. Um, Sorry, uh, Jim, you were about to say? I was going to ask uh, Tavi if Crescent Capital was short the, the bond market. Uh, we are. We've been in and out of that trade, and we've been uh, now, I would say, structurally uh, bearish on on treasuries, and but not only treasuries, uh, German bonds, and uh, even JGBs, um, and and some other uh, European uh, sovereign bonds as well. Um, we've been long some emerging markets. I know you guys asked the question about China. I think there's a big difference between commodity exporters and commodity importers. And, and uh, we're long Brazil. Um, you know, we think there are some opportunities there. I've never been bullish on Brazil, but I, I'm uh, just now starting to buy some assets uh, there with the funds. 
Um, and uh, but answering your question, yes, we're short most of the developed economies that cover debt in general. Uh, we think there's maybe a bounce here in treasuries in the short term, but uh, I do think that it's headed towards two and a half and three percent. And the next newspapers of the next uh, few months are going to be probably about yield curve control at some point, just like we saw with the BOJ. And that is, you know, to your point, uh, Jim, is gold in steroids. I mean, look at gold in, in Japanese uh, yen terms, basically all time high, so very close to it. So I think we're going to see the same in the U.S. at some point. The other week you tweeted something that I thought was interesting, but I, I didn't quite understand, and I think it ties into this. You wrote, we just had a major breakout in Japanese 10-year yields after forming a long-term double bottom. Central banks must allow long-term rates to rise first if they ever want uh, to raise short-term rates. Uh, could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. Look, if you look at the, the Fed dot or or if you just look at the uh, the curve of, of any of the short-term rates today, if we're going to take interest rates to levels that the Fed dots are, are perhaps projecting, uh, we're going to invert the entire yield curve in two years. And so it's, it's just absolutely impossible to do that. Or maybe, maybe they're just uh, uh, doing that on purpose. I, I, I doubt that that's the case. But, you know, if, if I think uh, the whole phrase, uh, don't fight the Fed, um, you know, I think, I think by shorting treasuries in the, in the long end, I think you're accomplishing that. What are you accomplishing by shorting treasuries in the long end? You're working with the Fed or you're working against it? <laughs> I think you're accomplishing uh, the fact that you're working with the Fed. You're allowing the long end to, to rise. The Fed wants the yield curve to steepen. I, I believe so. I don't think that the Fed is looking to have a yield curve inversion. I think all of us know, including the Fed, that that's a, a recessionary sign. What do you say to the argument that, uh, that the United States is too encumbered with debt to tolerate um, rates of interest um, much uh, higher than the ones we have now that uh, at some point, uh, not necessarily a distant one, say at a federal funds rate of 2%, you know, uh, rivets start to pop in our leverage financial system. And therefore, rates are constrained, not so much by the intentions of the Fed as by the structure of our finances. Well, look, I agree 100%. I think, I think policymakers have become their own prisoners. They are the ones that created those constraints. Uh, and how do you put a lid on inflation while preventing cost of capital from rising at the same time? So you're not going to be able to pursue that plan, I believe. And so I think that's why we're short treasuries all the way to two and a half and three percent. After that, we're probably out of that trade because I think the Fed is not going to allow any further movement in the long end from there. And so I think we're probably very close to peak tightening uh, narrative uh, in the markets. And I think gold and silver are starting to respond to that. And so it's difficult. You know, it's, it's almost equally as destructive to substantially tighten or loosen monetary conditions here. So irrespective of this kind of macro puzzle, and then you have copper, oil, uh, agricultural commodities that couldn't care less if the Federal Reserve raised rates to 1% or 2%. That's not how you fight inflation. Look at Brazil. It's taking interest rates up to double digits. Look in the 70s what we've done. And so I think the Fed is truly trapped. Um, and so this is the whole reason why I think it's the most bullish case uh, for owning tangible assets today. Well, this has really been intriguing. And I'm so glad you came to the telephone, Tavi. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to uh, Otavio Costa. His friends call him Tavi. Well, thank you, Tavi Costa. And thank you, Evan Lorenz. And on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I am Jim Grant. And looking forward to talking with you again soon on Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Mm-hmm.